NBC Arlington, um, man, I, I really did appreciate those uh, last few songs uh, that we sang because uh, when I look around this room right now, I, I see a whole bunch of faces, and I know a lot of us um, are going through a great time right now. Man, I, I see symbols of joy all around the room. I see kids around here, man, and it's amazing to see you. And I, I don't know, but just this last week, I'm just freshly aware of uh, so many people in our church body who uh, are going through a variety of hard things. And uh, the reason why I appreciate I'm hearing those songs is because every single one of us today, uh, we have a, a reason to rejoice, even through the tears, because what God says about you does not change. Uh, he loves you. Um, he cares for you. He's with you in it. And one of the disciplines that Christians have is a discipline of hope, of us looking forward to a day where every single tear that you've, that, 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 that you've ever cried There'll be no reason to cry anymore. There'll be no more tears, uh, no more suffering, uh, no more pain. Those will be formal things. And, and, and I love this because many people point to Christianity and they say Christianity is somehow some psychological crutch. That's how you kind of make it through. And I look at them and I say, yeah, it is. <laughs> but it's true. <laughs> it's true. There's a real Savior who came, who lived, um, who lived the perfect life, who died for our sins, who absorbed uh, the wrath of God that we deserved, who rose again, has given every single one of us uh, a chance to trust and believe in him, a chance to trust and believe that all the tears that we've cried and all the pain that we felt, that those don't have the final word over our lives. And so with that said, um, if you have a Bible today, I don't even, I ain't even introduce myself. If you knew, I'm Eric. <laughs> Welcome. Uh, glad that you're here. You got a Bible with you. Go ahead and turn to Psalm 76. Uh, Psalm 76. And so uh, today we are in the middle of a series titled A, a Psalm uh, for Everything. A Psalm for Everything. And here's what I want to get after today. Uh, today and every day, it's important for us to know God rightly so that we'll respond to him appropriately. And I would submit today um, that the attribute of God that we're going to cover today is one that isn't covered all that much. It's an attribute of God that we feel secretly embarrassed about, or we feel like we got to defend it. It's an attribute that many of us have said, if God is like this, I can't believe in him. Today, what we're actually going to talk about is we're actually going to talk about uh, the wrath of God. And I would say, me personally, there are many times in my faith journey where I've experienced doubt Right when my faith um, has, has been shaken, um, and I love the scriptures where it says to be patient with those who doubt. God doesn't push away those who doubt, but He welcomes them. He invites their questions. But I would say that the moment that I probably went through the most doubt in my faith would be wrestling with the issue that we're talking about today, and that's the wrath of God. And so when when I first understood this doctrine, uh, I immediately formed a picture in my mind of God who's somehow like cranky and indiscriminately casting people into hell. And my thoughts were, if God is like this, I don't know if I can believe in him. And I'm not the only one that has had this struggle. And so uh, there's an atheist a philosopher, his name is Bertrand Russell. In this book titled, Why I'm Not a Christian, he wrote this. He said, one of the reasons why he could not believe in Jesus was because Jesus so clearly believed in the wrath of God. He called Jesus' belief in the wrath of God the one, pro the one profound defect in his character. Um, if you think that was just for non-Christians, um, that's not true. C.S. Lewis actually said this. He said, there is no doctrine that I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this if it lay in my power. 
And here's the thing, if we're honest with ourselves, many of us sitting here today, we would say the same exact things. We don't like the wrath of God. And if we had an eraser, we would actually erase them from the scriptures. Uh, But today, I really hope that we walk away with a different mindset. I hope that we hold this doctrine with two hands, right? And many on one hand that this doctrine is difficult. Here's the thing. No one should talk about the wrath of God without tears in their eyes. None of us should. And what's interesting about this, and I'll say this on the other hand, we also have to admit, I pray that you walk away admitting that the wrath of God is actually a good thing. I pray that we'll understand that a God without wrath is actually a God without goodness. And so actually Psalm 76 gives us a picture of God's wrath. And so we're going to take some time to work slowly through this chapter. And I'm going to ask God after I, read, after, um, um, after I say this to help us understand him a bit more uh, today. And so today we're going to cover actually this question. Why is the wrath of God a good thing and why should we rejoice in it? The wrath of God is actually something that we should rejoice in. And so I'm going to pull together uh, three observations about this text. So before I do, let's pray together and then we'll dive right in. All right, let's do it. Um, Father, we um, are grateful for who you are and what you have done. All your ways are good and right. Father, help us to understand a bit of this doctrine today, this doctrine that um, often is tough for us to understand. But through Psalm 76, I pray that you'll open our eyes to help us understand that the wrath of God is not something that is evil. The wrath of God is actually something that is good, and the wrath of God is actually something that deep down we all desire. So God, help us to understand how that is. Help us to respond in faith and obedience. God, we love you, and I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, and so I'm going to give you guys three observations from this um, short text today. So I'm going to give you my first point just to start off right here. And so when we talk about the wrath of God, here it is. With the wrath of God, we see in the first three verses that there is protection with the wrath of God. There's protection with the wrath of God. Let me explain to you what I mean. But before that, let me read the first three verses. It says, um, in Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war. Here's one observation I want to give you in this text. And it's an observation that may take us off guard. Israel in this text is claiming to know God. They say straight up in verse one, in Judah, God is known. They're saying here, we know God. And the reason why that claim is so weird for our time is this. It's because that claim seems so exclusive in our own time right now. What do I mean? We live in a time in which, um, where many would say that it is wrong to make that claim. Right, for someone to claim that they have knowledge of God, that other people who claim to know God don't, uh, that, 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 that claim to know God um, don't have. And, and that seems to be the epitome of pride and exclusivity, to say that I know God and that they don't, right? And yet we see Israel here making that claim. They're saying with confidence, they're saying, listen, we know God, 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 we are your people. And we see this picture of God protecting his people in verse two, check it out. It says that his abode has been established in Salem. If you know what Salem is, Salem is simply shorthand for Jerusalem. Kind of like saying D.C. for Washington, D.C., right? And so it says his dwelling place is in Zion. So that word abode, um, uh, the more precise translation for that word abode is actually the word lair. Lair. 
So it furthers that picture of God as a lion. We actually sang a song earlier that, 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 that saying, um, our God is a lion. What, what does it say? It says, a, a lot, the lion of Judah, he's roaring with power. He's fighting our battles. Every knee will bow before the lion and the lamb. Every knee will bow before him. And in this psalm, what we see is this picture of God as a lion, and he's ready to attack anything that would come against his glory and against his people. So he's on guard, ready to pounce. And listen, when I think about this, this is what I think about. I think about how futile it would be to be protected by someone who's incapable of getting angry. So think about the nice family pet, right, that won't hurt a fly. And then you got a violent intruder that walks into your house and all they do is lick his heels. Think about the father who, who doesn't get angry at the thought of his children being hurt or, or, or assaulted. And what I appreciate about this picture is this. It's that God is not asleep on the job. He's not. He's not ambivalent towards the things that would hurt his children. He is angry. And, and we, we tend to think this, guys, we tend to think that his anger is the opposite of his love. But let me tell you today, his anger is actually an expression of his love. His anger is an expression of his love because God loves all, the, all that is good and just and beautiful and right. It follows that his response to everything that would threaten his goodness, his justice and righteousness is anger. His anger is great. and His anger is not impotent. He, he's not like scrappy dude. I, I, I might age myself here, right? Because um, y'all young millennials, y'all know about this, right? But there used to be a cartoon called Scooby-Doo back in the day. I don't know if y'all remember that, 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 that cartoon. And Scooby-Doo had a, I don't know, was, was his cousin, nephew, whatever. A scrappy dude was like this little dog, right? But he was always trying to square up, right? He was always trying to fight. But the thing was, well, nobody worried about scrappy-doo. Like, nobody was worried about his hands. Nobody was worried about him. He would try to fight, and people would just hold him off, right? Because nobody was, nobody was the least nervous about Scrappy-Doo because his wrath was not all that bad. He was all bark, and he was no bite. But let me tell you, that's not God. Think about God's other attributes. Listen, he's completely holy. He's completely and infinitely powerful. And if we think about this kind of person, and this person unleashes his anger, his anger is decimating. God's protection of his people, listen to this, because he is holy, because he is all power, he all powerful, listen to me, his protection of his people is always successful. God has all power and authority over all things. And here's the thing, we see a picture of God's wrath and protection of his people actually in verse three, if you look at the text, it says God is known in Israel. And you see in verse 3 that somebody tries to assault his people, and they're completely annihilated. You see in verse 3 how these enemies are trying to assault God's people, and yet the lion of Judah roars and pounces in protection of his people. And so I said all that, and you may be thinking, Eric, okay, cool, well, what should my response be to all that? Well, we got to make sure that we're his people, Right? We have to make sure that we don't stand on the wrong side of this God. And here's the thing. We become a part of God's people. How? By grace. By grace. There's nothing any of us can do that will make us more eligible to be God's people. Listen, even the people of Israel, they became God's people not because there was something great about them. 
It wasn't because they were smarter than anyone else. It wasn't because they did a great job on the SLT, SATs. It wasn't because they got a great job. It wasn't because they were beautiful or smarter or better looking or more moral or greater in number. It was none of that. Matter of fact, Deuteronomy 7 actually says it was for none of those reasons. I'm going to read it to you. Deuteronomy 7, 6, it says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love upon you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping an oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of, uh, king of Egypt. Y'all see what he's saying here? God chose them because of one thing and one thing only. It was because of grace. God didn't choose Israel exclusively. I love this. He's always determined for Israel to be used as a, as, as, as a demonstration of his grace to reach other people. God didn't just choose Israel. He chose Israel to be a vessel of his mercy so that the world might come uh, to, to know him. And here's the thing. The same with us, Christian. God didn't show you because something about you made you more lovable. It's not because you went to church. It ain't because you read your Bible. It's not because your good deeds, it's not because your good deeds are great. Your good deeds, it actually says here in the text, or not in this text, but in other texts, your good deeds are filthy in the sight of God because we've all sinned and rebelled against God. The Bible says that we start off as God's enemies. And you may look at me and you say, yo, Eric, like you looking at me and it's kind of heavy, E, like, Yo, I do good stuff. Like, I feel like I'm a good person. My good deeds count for something. But let me tell you something about our good deeds. Our good deeds are kind of like this. It's kind of like this. If we were all a gang of murderers, right? And one of you, changed, and one of you shares your sandwich with me. Yeah, that's a good act. But the entire mission that we're on is evil. And our whole lives, here today, is spent in rebellion against God, living for our glory instead of his, living as our own authority and rejecting his. And in the psalm, here's the thing. We're not Israel. We're not the ones being protected. We actually are the objects of God's wrath because of our sin. And yet, here's the beautiful thing. Instead of taking us out, God allows us to drop our arms and become his people. Why? I said it before. It's grace. We didn't deserve it. We've been saved by, by the grace of God from the wrath of God. How? Through the Son of God. Through the Son of God. Jesus experienced the onslaught of God's wrath so that we could become God's people. And to say that we are God's people isn't exclusive. It's actually inclusive. Why? Because every single person under the sign of my voice, every single person who lives on this planet Earth, as long as there is breath in your lungs and blood is coursing through your veins, you have an open invitation to repent and believe in this gospel. To be found in him, to experience protection and shelter from God's wrath, the shelter, hear me today, the shelter of Christ is big enough for one more. Believe in him. But I want you to take a look at verse 4. Because uh, my next point is this. Not only um, with God's wrath is there protection, with God's wrath is also punishment. I'm going to read it to you. Verse 4, it says this. It says, Glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains full of prey. Um, the stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. They sank into sleep. 
All the men of war were unable to use their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both the rider and horse lay stunned. But you, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you once your anger is aroused? From the heavens you uttered judgment. The earth feared and was still when the Lord arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth. Selah. Guys, let me give you some context to these verses. So um, there's actually a specific situation in the Psalms that addresses, um, that, that this Psalm is addressing. And while they're not completely sure, many commentators believe that this part of Psalm 76 is recounting how King Sennacherib's um, um, story um, and how he tried to attack Israel in 2 Kings chapter 8, um, chapter 18 and 19. So I'll summarize the story for you real quick. So King Hezekiah, Hezekiah, he's the king of Judah, they were in trouble. The Assyrian army was attacking Jerusalem, and the city was surrounded by 185,000 troops. So, so they're ready to attack, and all the people, rightly so, are scared, right? So you can imagine this. Like, imagine if we turned on the news right now, and a foreign army was knocking off city after city after city. Like, they got uh, Virginia Beach, and they're working their way up through Richmond, and they're in Stafford, and, and eventually they hit Alexandria, and, and they're on the way here, inching very closely to the D.C. area, and eventually surrounding us. And so get that picture. So King Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, surrounds Judah. He even says this. He said this line. He said, who among all the gods of all the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand? that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. Everybody, anybody ever heard of someone say something and you're like, yo, bro, you just said the wrong thing. <laughs> no, that, that, that's, what, that's what he just said, right? Because we see God's response. So, so in 2 Kings 18 through 19, what we see is God thunders out. He fights this battle for the people of Israel, displaying his wrath against his enemies. And in the end, all the enemies lay dead. It says in verse 7, of, 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 of Psalm 76, it says, At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. Hear me today. God's wrath thunders out in punishment of all that would disregard him, of all that would use their power to oppress the people of God. And this is why it's good news, and this is why I think it's easy for us to understand why God would demonstrate his wrath to the Assyrian armies here. Because in our hearts, hear me today, we all have this idea of justice, right? That those who do wrong should be punished for their wrongdoings. And there is hope here that the God of the universe sees every single wrongdoing ever committed. He sees every single act of oppression. He sees all of it. He sees, he, he sees the Holocaust. He saw the Holocaust. He saw the racism embedded in the history in our, of, of our country. He sees the people suffering even right now under the hand of oppressive people doing wrong. And the people perpetuating evil throughout the world, hear me today, they don't evade the eyes of God. They do not evade the eyes of God. He sees them. He will act. And this should be encouraging to you. And let me tell you today, I want to pause because this is not a statement that tells anyone to sit underneath oppression or someone who's doing evil because God is coming back. Hear me today, no, you do everything within your power to get from underneath that. 
You go to the authorities, right? You make evil acts being perpetrated against you known. But here's the encouragement for you today. Because God is just, his arms are longer than the law. What the laws missed, God won't miss. And this should be encouraging. No one will get away with evil acts. Because here's the thing, guys. A lot of us, man, we believe that God should never judge. Right? Like, so all of us, we secretly believe, we believe that love means that God will always let things go. And this is why I love a theologian. His name is Miroslav Volf. He's a theologian who lived through the oppression and genocide of Croatian. And I love this because he said this line, which was amazing. He said the only, the only way that anyone would ever say that, the only way that everyone would say that a loving God would just let things go, are people who lived in the suburbs their whole life and have never experienced true injustice. He went on to say this line. I'm going to put it on the screen because, and I said it often at Arlington because I think this is powerful for us to understand on why God can be loving and wrathful at the same time. So I'm going to put it on the screen. This theologian said this. He said, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Should a divine love be beyond wrath? God is love, and God loves every person and every creature, and that's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. He says this. He says, my last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed, and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and my cities were destroyed. Many people chelled or bombed day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade or the past century, where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in grandparently fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. And he said this money line. He said, God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. Y'all see this? What hope do we have for the evil in our world right now? I don't know about you. I watch our news and I feel wholly incompetent. When I look at the news of the world, when I look at people getting away with evil, what hope do we have for the evil in our world if we don't serve a God who punishes? But here's the problem, though. The problem arises for us. It arises in verse 7. Look at verse 7. It says, but you are to be feared. And look at this next question. Who can stand before you when your anger is aroused? It says, from the heavens you utter judgment, the earth feared and was stilled when God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth. Here's the issue, though. We're, we're like Assyria. <laughs> Every single one of us. Like, all of us have opposed God to his face. At one point, we're all enemies of his. We all sinned and, fall sh and fell short of the glory of God. We all said no to God. We all said to God, God, I will uh, intentionally disobey you. Because ultimately, I don't really fear you. God is holy. He doesn't grade on a scale. It's not 
those who are like Hitler that deserve punishment. He's incredibly holy. No sin evades his punishment. Here's the thing. Our hearts cry out for justice in the world, but we want the exception when it comes to us. And we have to be careful because our desire for God to punish evildoers doesn't stop with them. It includes us. Romans 3.10 says, no one is righteous, no, not one. Here's the thing. God is so patient with us. And sometimes I hear it often. Why doesn't God get rid of all the injustice right now? Because here's the thing. That would include us. <laughs> Look at the clock right now. It is 9.46. Uh, if God came right now and wiped out all evil at 9.46 this morning, none of us would be standing at 9.47. God, God is rightfully angry at sin. And what does that mean for us? We're going to get to this, but let me give you one application. If God treats sin so seriously and comprehensively, so should we. So should we. If you are under the sound of my voice, hear me today. Listen to me. Do not toy around with your sin. Do not inch closer to the things that elicit God's wrath. Here's an analogy for you. Back in 2011, there was a farmer in South Africa. He had a pet hippo named Humphrey. I don't know if you heard this story. And he was tragically killed by that hippo named Pet Humphrey. He had raised Pet Humphrey as a pet for five years. And before the incident, the owner had boasted. He said, people think that you can only have a relationship with dogs and cats. For me, that's debatable. But dogs and cats and domestic animals. But he said, I have a, uh, a relationship with the most dangerous animal in Africa. And a few months after he uttered that quote, the animal dragged him into a river and, and, and took him out. Here's the thing. I ain't the smartest person in the world. But I can say confidently that you can't have pet hippos. <laughs> and today, I want to say something to you with greater conviction and greater confidence than even that. You can't have pet sins. You can't have pet sins, y'all. Some of us have pet sins right now that we continue to feed and we continue to keep them around. And we know it's dangerous. And we think that we are in the clear because that sin hasn't bit us yet. It hasn't hurt us yet. Or we no longer feel guilty about it. And we feed sin like the family pet. But here's the thing. As Christians, we don't feed sin. We need to kill sin. John Owen, he said this. He said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And let me say something here, and I'll get out this point soon. I know people are feeling uncomfortable, man, but I got to say it, man. Listen, I would not be a pastor if I didn't preach tests like this. So theologians often talk about something called the passive wrath of God, right? And so how God and how this is God simply giving you over to the things that you've already stated that you want, right? The things that you are doing that you are wrong, that, that are wrong. And so God's greatest picture of his wrath held in the end, honestly, is God just simply giving you over to what you've already wanted. Sin is you wanting a life without God, right? Without his input, without his rule. And God's passive wrath is him saying, listen, if that's what you want, I'm not going to stop you. If you want life without me, here's eternity without me. That's what you want. And we see this described in Romans chapter 1. It says in Romans chapter 1, it says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, gave them, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And we think, wow, this is great, right? In our lives, when we sin, we think, man, it's great. I didn't get caught. Wow, this is great. I didn't feel conviction. 
No, that's not great because hear me the thing. The conviction and the uncovering of your sin is God's mercy so that he can wake you up now from committing sin. To get caught in your sin, hear me today, it's God's mercy because it's better to get caught and to turn from your sin now than to meet God face to face later. One of the worst things that God can do for you is to say, you know what? You can have it. I'm not going to convict you anymore. I'm going to let you go. I'm not going to intervene. It's one of the worst things that God can do. Guys, don't toy around with your sin. If you have something in your mind right now, repent it. Confess it. If we confess our sins, he's the great news. He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's good. Those who have been saved by God do not toy around with sin. You don't have pet sins. They put their sin to death. What is God telling you today? What sin are you so close to right now? What are you entertaining too much? What are you growing callous to? And this brings me to my last point. I mean, so far, you may be like, yo, Eric, like, all right, cool. Where's the good news? <laughs> Let me tell you, it's in verses 11 and 12. With God's wrath, there's propitiation. I'll explain that because propitiation, that's a, that's a word we don't use. That's like an SAT word, but I'll get there. Look at verses 11 to 12. I love the psalmist Asaph. He, said, he tells the Jewish people this. He says, make your vows to the Lord, your God, and perform them. Let all, around, let, let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared, who cuts off the spirit of princes, who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. Uh, I love this because the psalmist is telling of them to remember the vows you made when you were in trouble. Y'all know how we do. He's telling them, remember the vows that you made when you were in distress. Listen, he said, you were in a hopeless situation, and yet God delivered you, and now obey him. Y'all hear me. How easy is it for us to make vows in our distress that we don't intend to keep in our prosperity? I don't know about you. I've done it a lot. I'm in trouble. God, listen, if you come through for me here, I'll stop doing all that. But here's the thing. Today, I want to remind you of the hopeless situation that we were once in. Hear me. We were once a people. If you're a believer in Christ, you were once a people that at one time stood, stood condemned under the wrath of God. There is, no, there, there is no greater hopeless situation that you could ever find yourself in. We stood condemned by the only one that could save us. God wasn't the judge prosecuting us for crimes that we've committed against somebody else. God the judge was the very person that we committed the crime against. That's bad news. But God made a way. Here's the beautiful thing about God. We sinned to his face. And God made a way for us to, to be rescued from his coming wrath. He made a way for his wrath to be propitiated. So I'll define propitiation. Propitiation is a term that we don't regularly talk about, but it's an important concept in Scripture. Propitiation, it means this. If you take a note, you can write it down. I don't have it in the notes. It means this. It means turning away the wrath of God by an offering. Turning away the wrath of God by an offering. Here's the thing. There is no offering that we can give that can turn aside the holy wrath of God. The only thing that can turn aside the right wrath of God against sin has to be a perfect sacrifice. And we're not perfect. 
And this is where the beauty of the gospel comes in. The gospel proclaims that God is entirely just to punish us for our sin forever. But God the judge, who is, who is of infinite wrath, is also feared, filled him in a day with infinite compassion. This is beautiful. One of the most beautiful passages in all scripture is Romans 5, 68. I'm going to read it to you. It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But hear this. But God showed his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is amazing news. Hear me today. God in his great love made provision, made the provision that we could not make to quench the wrath of God that we provoked. How did he do this? In Christ. The cross is where God's justice and his love meet. We were God's enemies. And in the gospel, God chose not to pour out his wrath on his enemies, but on his own son. And we could rejoice because the wrath of a good and just God has been turned aside from us. We no longer have to live under God's wrath. We can live under his mercy this morning. The justice that we deserve has been served because Jesus paid for your sin. And this is good news. There's forgiveness to be had for your sins. Jesus, the Son of God, not only took upon himself, God hit the Father's wrath upon himself willingly. He did it willingly. He rose again from the dead and he now sits at the right hand of the throne of God. So that anyone who would come, anybody, it doesn't matter who you, what you've done, where you've been, your past, any of that. If you trust in him as Lord and forsake your sin, you can be forgiven and you can be made right with God. And if you have not done that today, today's the day of salvation. You have the opportunity to do that today. And I want to I encourage you to take that opportunity. I want to encourage you to do not allow this opportunity to escape from your grasp. I'm going to invite the band to come back up, but I want to give you a, a, an analogy really quick and give you some encouragement at the end of the sermon. So there's this old uh, Russian novel, and this, and, and this Russian novel, the title of it is called Eugene Onegin. And so Onegin, um, the, the, the whole gist of this article is uh, Onegin meets this innocent, homely young girl in the countryside, and this girl, Tatiana, writes him a letter and this girl offers her love to um, Onigan. So Onigan, he reads the letter, doesn't even respond to the letter. And so they meet and they discuss the contents of the letter and pretty much he turns her down. He says, man, listen, your letter was touching, uh, but he tells her that he would soon grow bored of, get, of being married to her, so therefore he won't. So fast forward years later, Onigan is at this huge party he sees this incredibly beautiful young woman. He's struck by her. He has to have her. And he looks closely, and it, 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 it actually is uh, Tatiana. And by this time, she's married. But Onigan, he falls in love with her. He, he pursues her. He's desperately trying to win her back. But Tatiana refuses him. You see, once the door was open, once the door was open, and she offered him her love, and now it was shut. And for many of us here today, it is easy for us to reject Jesus now. Uh, like Tatiana's letter to Onigan, his offer is touching to us. But we believe that we'll be happier without making that commitment. 
Like we, we worry that he'll cramp our style. We will worry uh, that, um, so we move on with our life and we leave, him, we leave him in the spiritual countryside, so to speak. But one day the Bible warns this, that we'll see Jesus in all of his glory and all of his beauty and all of his majesty and all of his love. And we'll know in that moment that all the greatest treasures that we've experienced in this life are pale in comparison to who he is and what he's done. And here's the thing, I want to spare you from regret because in that moment, if you don't trust him now, you will, bitter, you will bitterly regret that later. But it'll be no more unfair. Hear me today, that's not unfair of God because it'll be no more unfair than Tatiana's rejection of Onigan. Because here's the thing, if we accept Jesus now, we will live with him forever in a fullness of life that we cannot imagine. And if we reject him now, he will one day reject us and we'll be internally devastated. Here's the thing, the choice is ours. Hear me today, God is slow to anger. He's given you an opportunity. The reason why you have breath in your lungs and blood coursing through your veins is because you have another day, another moment to trust in Jesus for your salvation, to repent and believe. But Christian, let me ask you this. Are you living as someone who believes this? If you believe that the wrath of God has been turned aside, hear me today, we give our lives to him. Nothing is off limits. We will understand that we've been forgiven. Who he's forgiven much, loves much. And here's the thing. We have no need to fear him anymore. If we believe that God's wrath is real, hear me today. Let me give you another thing. We'd warn everybody about it. We'd warn everybody about it. We'd share how God has provided a way to reconcile us to God and to move from beneath his wrath to experience the depths of his love. Close an analogy, Penn Jillette. He's half of the comedic duo, uh, Penn and Teller. And I don't know if you heard of this comedic duo. They do some residency stuff in, in Vegas. Uh, but Penn is a committed atheist. And he described a time after one of his shows uh, when someone attended his show and gave him a copy of uh, a Bible. And you would think Penn, he's a committed atheist. He would throw the Bible back in his face. But Penn was actually incredibly thankful for the justice. And I can't say that's always going to be the jest that you might receive if you do something like that. But I appreciated Penn's response because Penn was able to articulate the consistency of it. Let, let, let me explain to you what Penn said. He's an atheist. He said this. And I've given this quote multiple times here. But he said this, and I'll put it on the screen. He said, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? Or in other words, not to like, share your faith. This is what he says. He says, how much do you have to hate someone to believe that everlasting life is actually possible and not tell them that. If I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point that I would tackle you, and this is more important than that. That's not even a Christian saying that. that, that, that that's an atheist. And I say all that to say in closing, that guys, we can be so committed and so focused on the wrong stuff. We're too worried about us. We're so outwardly focused about our own lives. We're so outwardly focused about our own, uh, our own reputations. We're, we're, we're so worried about what others can do for us rather than spreading this message to the world. And we're so concerned about our own comfort. And you see in the New Testament, people are wholly concerned about getting the gospel out. Guys, if we believe that the wrath of God was real, on one hand, we would not toy with our sins. And if we believe that the wrath of God is real and that the gospel is real and that, if, that God's love provides a way for us to be saved, that our sins, they are, though are many, his grace is more, we would share that beautiful message 
with the entire world. We would share that message everywhere. Believers in Christ, let's be about that work. And if you're not a believer in Christ, we invite you today. Today is the day of salvation. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus. Let's take a moment and pray this morning. Father, we love you. God, we are so grateful. That if there was no such thing as your wrath, that our world would simply just devolve into dog eat dog, eye for eye violence. There would be no such thing as the beauty of forgiveness, the beauty of absorbing somebody else's wrongdoing and refusing to put it back on them without the forgiveness that you offer through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for the beauty of forgiveness in this world. Father, thank you for the fact that we can entrust, especially those who are helpless under the arm of oppression, that ultimately, if there is no way out, ultimately, if the government is turning a blind eye to them, you said in your word that vengeance is mine, I will repay. Father, thank you so much that the only hope that we have for justice is the fact that you are a God of complete justice. But as we declare that in our souls, we know that we are not exempt. We know that if you are a holy God, complete and utterly perfect in all your attributes, that you don't grade on a curve, and that we stand as objects deserving your just wrath. But thank you for the opportunity for us to become from underneath your wrath and to be objects of your love and mercy all through the gospel. And thank you for the opportunity to believe in that. So, Father, for the Christian underneath the sound of my voice, I pray that we'll be a people who actually live as if we believe that. Help us to quit toying with sin. Help us to open our mouths and to share our faith to people who need to hear it. And for those who don't know you, God, I pray that they will understand that your wrath is an expression of your love. Help us to repent and believe in you. Help us to understand that you, God, are not a figment of our, our imaginations, that you, God, are not some kind of, that you're not simply some kind of psychological crutch, that you are real, that the gospel actually happened, and that you give us an opportunity to trust and believe in you. God, help us today. Only your spirit can produce salvation in us, so we pray that you'll do that work. Help us, God. We love you. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. If you agree, say amen, amen. amen.